Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday night. I'm going to try to see if I can hop around and do this talk early in the week so I have time to devote to a lot of other activities I have, especially the lectures. Uh, very time consuming. So busy can do. Before I do, I want to thank uh, all those who have been sending in contributions. I appreciate it very much. Uh, it's all being <laughs> used. And I just want to call out a very special contribution. A substantial donation was given by someone. I don't think he wants his name there, but He's giving it a, a substantial donation in honor of uh, two of my favorite people, Nathan and Beth Adler, uh, relatives of mine, and uh, as I said before, we're appreciative. Um, but let me hop around and use the time I have now, um, because in Shul, they didn't mention whose yard site is this week, but fortunately, Ari Elbaum sent me a bunch of names, and I see one of them is the Shavuz Yaakov, and that's one I can easily sink my teeth into without giving a great deal of thought to it. Shulis Yaakov is a uh, name of a Chuba Safer uh, sponsor collection from someone who's not really so well-known at all, except what the Safer is. And uh, this is someone who was a rabbi, an Ashkenazic rabbi. Not so different, but yet different from the person I spoke about last week, the Chavis These are the big Ashkenazi rabbis of, the, of yesteryear, of the 16 and 1700s. Uh, the Chavazir lived almost his whole life in the 1600s, and Shavuz Yaakov is half and half. He was like from 1660 to 1730, 1735, something like that. I'll look it up. Uh, those years, late 1600s, early 1700s. And Shavuz is a very, very interesting person, although perhaps to some people you hear the same biography over and over again, but they're really not. And uh, let me make the following point. A couple year, Last year, I think it was, in my show, uh, we have Dr. Ensel, cardiologist, and he organized once in a while a medical symposium for the Jewish community, and we've done it two or three times, and uh, I always add a few words to it. I'm no MD, obviously, PhD, but not an MD, and so what I always do is some uh, parsha from uh, Jewish medical history, shall we say, and then they do the real stuff, the real medical uh, talks, different specialists, and last time which was actually a year ago. It was last December. Uh, they did some symposium on, I don't know, some, on, on bone structure, I don't know, some, some health business. And I did actually a piece on the, on the, on the Shavuz Yaakov, a story about the Shavuz Yaakov, who I'm talking about tonight. So I think it must be online somewhere. If you're actually interested, you go look. And uh, as I recall, it'll say a medical tale about the Shavuz Yaakov or some title like that. None are as blind as those who will not see, you know. Uh, and it's actually very interesting. It's about 10, 12, 15 minutes long, something like that. And uh, I don't know if it's with the other YouTube stuff that's out there online, and maybe it's with the YouTube stuff that's not. I'm not sure. Anyway, to get to the point, here we're dealing with somebody who was a rabbi in Europe, uh, like I say, in the late 1600s, early 1700s, from Prague. He's very different in many respects from the Chavis. He are, even though they're from the same milieu. Uh, but they both have a Prague background. 
The Shus Yaakov was the son of a, here's somebody who was from, as they say before, the highly stratified class society of Ashkenazic Jewry once upon a time. And by that's fancy words for saying there's a rabbinical class, a few Talmudic Chacham at the top, mass of people that don't know that much, there's the rich people, and the two elites are always fighting who should control. Prague is like the classic place of the constant struggles between uh, mechlokes, in other words, between different factions in the Jewish community, usually one rich group against another rich group, but also sometimes one learned group against another. And without boring you with all the details, the Shlis Yaakov came from the right family, and his father was a Chasha person. His father was a Chasha rabbi, his uncle, and, uh, you know, that sort of, and he marries, let me put it this way, he married the sister, I think, if I remember correctly, of the Elia Rabba, who's also a big rabbi. You, know, you may have heard that Sefer names quoted fairly often. So this is a time when Prague, where I was last uh, su- uh, summer, right? I mean, uh, is that correct? Yeah, last summer. I did a podcast on that. Prague was, in the 1600s, 1700s, the most important uh, learned community in, East- in Europe. Very likely. No, it's the number one place of Torah scholarship. And if not, then it's up with the top two or three. And uh, that's just very interesting because the Jews of Prague lived under the rule of the Austrian Empire, which was very anti-Semitic. And under the Jesuits, they were very anti-Talmudic. And uh, they suffered a lot of uh, harsh exeris, especially years I'm talking about, the late 1600s, 1700s, and extra taxes and all kind of uh, discrimination things. Really persecution. And every once in a while, the Yeshivas were raided. This is when Yonus and Abishas was running around. And so, uh, it was a tough time. And in spite of all that, you produce some serious scholars. Now, the person I'm talking about, who came to be known as Yaakov Reicher, uh, the person I'm talking about was from one of these uh, Hushua families. And obviously, he must have been a genius since he's young. And uh, had an atiyah to Halach Lamaisa. That's the interesting part about him. Although he also was a Rosh Hashiva. And at an early age, you know, he's learning up in I mean, Prague is the place you want to be. I'm going to use a, a, a funny word, but you'll, I'm doing it for a purpose. It's like the Lakewood of Europe at that time. That's where you want to be if you want to have talk to a lot of other people learning. You know, we have a large, relatively large group, and people who think they really know. And many of them do. And so uh, this is the world in which the top position is to be, as I've said over and over again in these podcasts, a communal rabbi, Av Bezin, rub of a city, or something like that, in which case you wear several hats. And that's exactly the Shus Yaakov is, is, is chip off the old block from this perspective. So he was born in the right situation. He married the right girl. I don't know if he had any money, but, uh, but he was in an elite situation. And he learned up a storm. And he had a personal uh, inclination towards Allah Lamaisa, so he was a dying. Uh, and, you know, dying in Europe means like this. The rabbi gives the fancy shiurim, and you deal with dying with the day-to-day nitty-gritty uh, shilas, uh of everything up to the top level. In other words, in the kashras, and taras mishpacha, and uh, life in the old days, Passover shilas, of which there are always a million, uh, you know, mikvah questions. Now, the really hard ones go to the rov. But there's a million of them that don't reach that level. If, if the Dayanamans are doing their job right, they handle and they can solve most of the Shilas. Uh, even getting questions, believe it or not, uh, you know, things like that, or Ksuba questions. It's just an interesting world. 
and he will be a person, the person we're talking about today, Rabbi Yaakov Reisher, who will uh, write a lot of books, a bunch of these little uh, uh, books, on highly specialized subjects in halacha. But that's not all he is. At the age of 20-something, or close to 30, um, he gets a job as a rabbi in Galicia, in eastern Poland, which is interesting, because he's from Bohemia, from Western Europe, or Central Europe, and uh, he gets a job as uh, in Zhezhov, which was a very important community of yesteryear in Poland. The Jews can't sp- speak Polish, so Zhezhov, you know, they talk like that, so they're called Reisha. And if you know people today called Reisha, we have in Baltimore, others, Reisha. So that means they have some connection with the town of Zhezhov. And this person, Shwesiaka, was the rub there for about 20 years. Uh, from... Whew, what was it? I'd say 1690, something like that, to uh, 1709. That's right. Yeah, 1609, 1709. So uh, you might say like this. Well, those are just names to you, years to you. I get that. However, pay close attention. Uh, Poland uh, turned into a hellhole in a battlefield starting around 1700. In 1690s, it wasn't bad because it was King Jan Sobieski, and just take my word for it. But when it gets to the 1700s, uh, Poland like fell apart, and they erupted what the historians call the Great Northern War, from like 1700 to 1718, or 1721, actually. And that's 20 years of bitter wars. They were fought between Peter the Great, the Tsar of Russia, and Charles XII, the King of Sweden, the military genius who was nuts, and King Augustus the Strong, of Poland, and without boring you with the details, long bloody war, and a lot of it was fought in Poland, and like who cares, if you're Jewish, that means the Russian army's marching through, and burning and pillaging and looting and, and robbing, and then the Swedish army's marching through, the Saxon army, because the king of Poland was a Saxon, believe it or not, and things like that, so it was a rough time to be there, and uh, I'm sure, this must be the reason, he left his stellar in a nice place like Galicia, which it was before all this trouble happened in the uh, 1600s, and uh, moved back to uh, Prague. Uh, actually, he left Poland, the position in Russia. That's why they call him Yaakov Reischer. If you look in the encyclopedias, the Swiss Yaakov is called Yaakov Reischer. It's not his name. Since he was the rabbi for almost 20 years in a town called Zhezhev, where the Jews call Reich, so the Jews call him Reischer. You see? And there... He had it in the best Polish style. He's out based in Paschal de Chal, That's what he liked to do. He had a yeshiva, although the community was probably poor. And, uh, you know, do all those things probably very productive for him intellectually and writing. But then he left. And he moved all the way to Germany, to the western part of Germany, where I won't say conditions were perfect, but it was a, basically a peace zone. What do I mean when a peace zone? Remember last week I talked about the French... Wars between the French and the Germans and all that, when the the Chavisier was alive and how the French burned down the city, of Worms and a lot of other areas. It depends where this rabbi is li- living. <laughs> you know, what life is like. To use an American metaphor, you understand there's a big difference if you tell me somebody was in uh, Poland in the 1940s, or if you tell me he's in New York City in the 1940s, or in Soviet Russia. Uh, obviously, if you're in New York City, is a peace. 
even though the country is at war, but it's at peace and quiet. You could have a yeshiva, you could have things like that. If you live, God forbid, in Poland or Russia, it was, uh, you know, the jaws of Gehenna opened up. So it depends where and when you live. So Yaakov Reicher moved from a war zone, as I would call it, uh, to Ansbach, which is in western Germany. And at that time, while the war, the Great Northern War, was raging in northern Europe, as I just described before, a different war, called the War of the Spanish Succession, was raging in Western Europe, but the Germans were winning. And so the fighting was in France and Belgium and not in Germany. So if you're Jewish, if you live in a place like Ansbach, and Germany is, 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 is quiet, you understand? It's peaceful. And so that's why a rub would move from Poland to some other place, depending on what the violent situation is and all that. So it's just very interesting. And uh, he was in this uh, place in Ansbach for about four years. I think he got, if I remember correctly, he got in the fights with the Balabatim. Because if you ever read the, the, the writings of the Shrusyankov, especially the Shubas, he doesn't take nothing off anybody. <laughs> you know? I mean, he was a nice guy. Uh, how do I know he was a nice guy? He was a popular Shubas, so the boys liked him. And I read once a memoir from somebody in Yiddish, an old-fashioned Yiddish, some poor boy who walked. You know, in those days, you'd walk hundreds of miles to go learn. You had some people like that. And uh, and he had dry crust of bread, like the Mishnah says, Pastor Maftoka. He had a hard life. And all I remember, I'm going back in memory over here, is he said, he met Yaakov Reicher, as he calls me, he was very kind to me. You know, he was he, he was very nice to me. Which is the old school. I'll tell you what I mean. You're, uh, <laughs> like Les Gonsalvin used to say, humble to the humble and flexible to the arrogant. I think that's really what was Yaakov was. You know, if you're dealing with a Yeshiva guy who needs money or somebody down and out, he's very nice to them. If you're dealing with a rich guy or a big Tamachachim who's uh, arrogant and all the rest of it, he'll punch you in the nose. I'm talking to Shosiago, punch you in the nose. It's interesting. Uh, it's better than the other way around that they uh, kiss up to the rich and the powerful and they beat up the poor and the helpless. He's the reverse, <laughs> right? He beat up the rich and the powerful and defend the poor and the helpless. So he was a real thing. And I remember I read this, old, uh, it was an old-fashioned Yiddish. It was interesting. I believe it's in, in Simcha Asaf's History of Jewish Education in Hebrew. But Makarso uh, told us, I think. But it doesn't matter to you. Anyhow, the point is that um, he's there for a couple of years. He got in a fight with the Balabatim. And then he moves back to Prague. Uh, so here's somebody who's already 40, something like that, in the full vigor of his uh, career, and, uh, you know, big time Chacham, and in Prague, you know, he gets a lot of shyness, he was getting questions from all over Europe already, so his reputation had preceded him, and Prague to him is a lakewood, it's not like a small town where you have two or three people talking learning to many people, but then, something very interesting, in 1713, which is four years after he moved to Prague, um, he probably got a dying job there or something like that, four years after he moved to Prague, Prague was hit with a catastrophe. This is just a very interesting and sad part of history. Part of history is what they call medical. Uh, before modern science, uh, people were exposed to, to plagues. And I mean, they used to have these pandemics, as they call them, great epidemics that swept the world. You've heard of the Great Death back in the Middle Ages, the bubonic plague. Well, guess what? There were constant repeats of the bubonic plague from time to time. And there's Remember I told you a minute ago there was something called the Great Northern War between Peter the Great and Charles XII and all the rest of it when the armies are fighting each other? That coincided with the outbreak of a bubonic plague in Northern Europe, in like Lithuania, in, in, in Estonia, in Sweden, in Russia, and Poland. 
It was terrible. And millions died. Uh, in, there are many places in Northern Europe. I remember there, I read somewhere in Estonia, three quarters of the population died from the plague. Think about that. 75% of the population and similar numbers elsewhere. Uh, and there was, yeah, because from a hygiene perspective, first of all, they never heard of antibiotics, so forget all that. So then the only thing you can hope for is the plague doesn't reach you. But in wartime, the soldiers are moving everywhere and the animals are, are being transported everywhere and the people bring the supplies are going everywhere. So all you need is one guy to go to an infected area and then come back home, you spread it. And that's how it's spread all over the place. From a modern perspective, I'm sure they would have, you know, tried to cordon off, like typhoid, isolate the bad places. This is unknown in those days. And so it hit Prague in 1713. This is a famous thing in, 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 uh, in world history. It's called the Great Northern War Plague Outbreak, if you want to be technical about it. You can go look it up. The Great Northern War Plague Outbreak. And when it hit Prague, it killed 40,000 people. And whole Prague wasn't much bigger than that. And so uh, it hit the Jewish community terribly. And um, there is a tshuva in the Swiss Yaakov, which I have to talk about in a minute. It's very, his tshuvas are extremely interesting because uh, they're all over the place. Uh, but I remember there's a tshuva there in which, uh, you know, a guy died and he left in his will a certain amount of money to be used for pigeon shuvim. Can they be used now for victims of the plague? There are a lot of Jews becoming impoverished and sick and whatever because of the plague and like to go him and, uh, you know, can you use the money for that or is it only specifically for the pigeon shuvim? He said you can use it. And the reason he said it's like this. When the plague comes, the anti-Semitism comes out. They locked us up in the Prague ghetto. They wouldn't let anybody go in or out. They didn't care if we starved to death. They're afraid that we're poisoning them. You hear that? They're afraid we're poisoning them. And if a Jew was caught on the road, they probably killed him because they think he's a bearer of the plague. None of this is scientifically true. None of it is just pure anti-Semitism. And so it shows you what kind of time he lived in. And in those days, my friends, if you had any sense whatsoever about medicine, and you knew that there was a plague in the neighborhood or something like that, the only logical thing that worked was you run away. I mean, you physically get up and run away. See, if you, the minute you heard, there's a makefa somewhere nearby, you just leave. <laughs> you, I know it sounds funny, but you, you like drop everything, get on a horse or wagon or whatever you do, and, or, or by foot, and walk, walk, walk to get to a mountain nearby or a forest where nobody else is, and hope, then, then the germs can't get you. You may possibly recall the Ramad did this back in the 1500s when he wrote his book on McGillcester, the Mechir Yayin, the Sefer on McGillcester, which he said is a plague. We immediately picked up and ran away to the woods somewhere, and I'm here in Purim, and I don't have any farms, so I'm writing a, my own commentary, this a whimsical philosophical commentary on McGillcester, which is so cool. Uh, so Shruthyanko found himself running away uh, over here. Now, uh, listen to this. He says that when he was, that means he left all this farm behind. Right? He left all this farm behind. So a guy like this lives for this farm. I'm talking about heavy duty Yun, uh, Bakias, and people didn't have libraries. A, a hush of a rabbi like him would go to the trouble of accumulating an important and respectable personal library of Sifriya Postum and that sort of thing, and Gemara and, and Alocha. Because he was of that level. He was like uh, one of the leading uh, postkim. But now you ran away. So basically, you're out of books. And the only thing he had him was Ein Yaakov. I remember this. I may not be saying exactly correct. I think I am. But if you look at that thing I did on the YouTube, they'll say it uh, exactly. 
And he had the Ein Yaakov, you know, which we talked about the other day, the collection of the Agatas. And uh, since he had that, he said he's going to write a commentary on the Ein Yaakov. So he started working on the Agatha. It's not easy to do either. And that's the Iyun Yaakov, if you ever get a regular edition of Yaakov. One of the things you have inside is Rashi, and other things in Marshall. And one of the things called Iyun Yaakov, which is from this guy, from the Swiss Yaakov. Now, there's a story connected with this. That's the reason I'm, I, I, I spoke about it. Uh, because he was, you know, running away from plague here and there. But then eventually he went away, and then he went to get a job. Guess where he got a job? The same place that the Chavis was, Worms. That city was burned down, rebuilt. And all those yekis gave him so much of a hard time. Well, guess what? He became the rub over here. He ran into the same kind of yekisha business in which they drove him crazy. And I remember they called the government on him. They were malshini him and all this kind of business. And he obviously wouldn't kiss up to the richest guys in the community and all the rest of it. And they embittered his life. And uh, I just and, and remember, it's a community of 20, 30 families. Maybe a little more. I don't think so. So it's like... You know, everybody's rubbing shoulders with everybody else with all the fights. And uh, as a result, uh, when he published, he had already published in Poland, I think, the first volume of his uh, Safer on uh, Charles and Schubert. And now he was publishing the second volume. So in there, he is autobiographical. And he cusses at his enemies. Oh, my goodness. And, uh, let, me, let me pull it over here. I have it from the old speech. Pogubi sonai chinom. I was attacked by people who were enemies for nothing. Means I didn't cause their cause them to be angry at me. They just did it. They chased me with And they say all kind of lush and hard against me and say lies. And you know, and guess what happened? Because I was right and they're wrong, and because I was innocent and they were just bad people, God hit them with blindness. Hashem rob on ye. God's took up my case, and the people who were my enemies were full of busha chlima, which probably means they went broke or something like that. And some of the people who uh, who gave me an eye in horror lost their eyes. Meaning, at that time, there's all kind of eye illnesses and blindnesses and stuff like that. You, you can just imagine what was the level of optimal uh, ophthalmology care. And so they went, so basically they wanted to do me in and they drove me out of this position. And as I said before, they called the government against me and all kind of stuff. And so what happened? I moved on from Worms to a much bigger community, Metz, which was the capital city of French Ashkenazi Jewry. Uh, later, the Shagasai was there. He became the rub there, I think, to the end of his life, maybe. And, uh, uh, what do you call it? When he was there, or a number of years, anyway. And he was there, and uh, uh, basically, ha, 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 I got better, and you went bad. Well, guess what happened? Uh, this I'm telling you what he writes, not what I'm saying. He writes, after he came to Mets and all this stuff, he went blind. So whatever ophthalmology plague or phenomenon that had been over there, you know, eventually hit him. Now imagine a guy who's like 50 years old, and a super Talmud Chacham, and he lives for the books, and that can't see at the peak of his career. And so, my goodness, what a bummer. Uh, he's beyond depressed. However, he was a from guy. He was a from guy. And so he said, I take the, I'm, what they call, matzdik as a din. In other words, if God did it, then he's right. 
and I see the error of my ways. You understand? He perceived the error of my ways. And a person should never um, go and wish uh, an illness on another yid. Okay? And he said he prayed to God and, um, you know, hoped that the blindness would go away. Hope against hope, as we say today. And he writes there, Out of my tzara, I called out to God, and I begged the Lord, please heal me. Don't give me to this death, because if I can't see, it's like an intellectual death. Cause me to enlighten my eyes with the Torah again. Okay, Shema Hashem Kol Yaakov, hear the voice of Yaakov, that's his name. He writes like King David in the 51st Psalm. Well, guess what? So notice, he really did what you and I would say today, a tshuva gemura. Well, guess what? He got a sight back. Turns out, he had a cataract. And that's what it was, cataracts. And they didn't know at that time. I remember he's, he got like in 1720, he got a cataract operation that was successful. Uh, I've been told by doctors, I never looked it up myself, specialists, I think Sean Kelman told me or something, that, you know, cataracts uh, have been uh, successfully performed since ancient times. That's one thing they know how to do. And so just imagine, <laughs> he got his sight back, it's a mason. it's unbelievable. You know, you got, and he was chastened. You understand? He said, I'm never going to do that again. And he promised uh, during his uh, blindness that if he ever gets better again, ayin tachas ayin. This way he writes, I'm going to do ayin tachas ayin. What does that mean, ayin tachas ayin? Eye for an eye. I'll, I'll finish up my commentary on Ayin Yaakov. Ayin Yaakov. Ayin Yaakov. Get it? It's too good to be true. Dan Yaakov is a saver that's written long, was put together long before he was born. But his name is Yaakov. And he had the eye of Yaakov Reicher that got blind. And now it was restored. So he's going to write the Eun Yaakov on Ein Yaakov. It's like a really cool story. And, um, but as I say before, and he basically said like this, I'm doing this to fulfill a vow, and I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to go and curse people out anymore. Now, I won't say it's 100% true. He never used that kind of language. But this is a person who was a big writer, and I would divide the writings of the of Yaakov Reicher, which are all, all interesting, in three uh, um, categories. Uh, one is this thing on the Agatha Eun Yaakov, which is cool. You know, you can, I mean, let me put it this way. I did a lot of the Agatha for the art scroll, especially I did Parachalic many, many moons ago. And uh, I always used Eun Yaakov, among others, you know. Uh, and, and sometimes he has, like, really uh, cool stuff. So uh, it's, it can be used today. I know the art school now is putting out this Eun Yaakov of their own with the English. I'll, I'll bet you money, I haven't looked at it, that they'll use the Eun Yaakov from others. And many people don't know it. It's just Yaakov. Separately, he was the Dayan. So he wrote these, uh, you know, little uh, but very important halachic tracts on specific areas of halacha. You don't find Achorim do that so much. And so, for example... Off the top of my head, he wrote the Torah Sashlamim on Hilchus Nida. When I first learned Hilchus Nida many, many moons ago, you know, I remember we went through all that, uh, the Torah Sashlams and all these. You know, he's one of the main guys in Hilchus Nida. He's a very important person. Uh, but that means you really got to get, you know, with the Vestas and everything, you got to get into the real nitty-gritty. He has that Chok Yaakov on Hilchus Pesach, something you buy, you know, with the, with the Nesivas on the one side and the 
and the Chak Yaakov on the other side. Again, all the nitty-gritty kind of um, um, halachas of Hilchas Pesach, especially Bata Bashishim and this kind of chametz nuksha and this kind of chametz and, and a million questions on the, uh, what do you call it, the, the mechiras chametz. I remember the funniest one goes like this. You know, he has real life there. Tremendous real life. A, lady, a guy from Prague was in jail. In jail, is there of Pesach. So he called his wife in. People didn't know anything at that time. The women definitely were not learning. So, and he's like this. You know, he's a from guy. So he says, listen, but from the chametz, you have to sell the chametz. Make sure... You give the go to the guy that we always sell to because at that time the rabbi didn't do like in America today. The one rabbi uh, sells for everybody, which is a better system from the halachic point of view. But at that time everybody made their own mechira uh, long ago, and not everybody knew all the rules. And this guy says, when you sell the chametz to the guy, be sure you give him the key. You know, saying give him the key. So that's like a chomer, and it's a very nice thing. Many insist on that, so he can the guy can actually access. The Chomets on Pesach, that makes it like not a uh, legal fiction. The uh, Here in Baltimore, you know, some do this way, some do that way. I do it with Ray Rottenberg. He does the Rosh Hashanah system in which they don't give him the key, but it writes in the Star Mechira, you can break in that house if you want to. That's what they tell the guy. It's written in there. You can break in the house and get the Chomets if you want to. Now, uh, so he says, give the guy the key. She was all flustered, and so she never sold the Chomets. She sold the key. You know, saying that she went to the guy, is there a Pesach, like she did, like she was told by her husband. She was a nice woman, she was an obedient wife. And she went, she says, My husband told me I should sell you the key. <laughs> right? You know, so she never sold the chumas. So now he got out of jail, a Pesach is over. What do he do? Is it Chumas Shabbat of a Pesach or not? I'll tell you, his tubes are full of these wonderful real life, uh, you know, uh, questions. It's really cool. I, I, I don't know why I remember that one. But, um, see, he's got the Chuck Yaakov. He has something else, I forget. Is that Minchas Yaakov on the uh, really nitty green on Isra You know what I mean? The, uh, the uh, you know, Shritan uh, and all that, the Kashu stuff uh, on the Torah Chatas of the Ramah. Yeah, in other words, highly detailed nitty gritty sorts of halachic tracts. And my goodness, I remember if people people wrote against his sock and he was real angry and he wrote against them and all the rest of it. Uh, and he, you know, and he, you know, they said, you're wrong. He said, I'm wrong. You don't even know how to learn. You know, you don't even have to read. You know, your bupkis with them, you know. He, he, he could take it, but uh, not so well, but he could dish it out. And then his most important work, in, in my opinion, would be the Shalos and Shuvus Yaakov uh, in, in two or three volumes, uh, which are wonderful. Now, I'll tell you something. It's always, uh, uh, with me, anyway, all I'm telling you is my personal experience. It all depends, though, how it's formatted. Years ago, many years ago, when I was in Yeshiva, I bought a Shavuos Yaakov, the old school, tall, thin volume, and the little chicken scratch writing. And it's not inviting to read because of the graphics. That's just who I am. You know, I know other people are different. I'm telling you who I am. And so once in a while, I would look at Shavuos Yaakov, and, you know, somebody else quoted it or whatever. But in there. But I must say, about 10 years ago, something like that, they put out a much better one with, uh, with uh, you know, uh, regular block print and so forth. And then, about seven or eight years ago, they put out this beautiful edition, I consider beautiful, really nice letters uh, in three volumes in, uh, I think, 2013 or whatever. Three volumes. I like it so much, I even bought a separate copy, separate set for the show, because it was so interesting. Now, it's hard for me to describe it here, 
But I can just tell you, if you're able to read the Hebrew, you can have a lot of fun. I don't mean to be funny. I'm being serious now. You, you, you find it very educative, and you have a lot of fun. If you just read through the Shilas and the Shuziar, you don't have to read the answers. Now, by the way, his responses are not very long, so they're definitely doable. Usually, anyway, they're not long. Usually, they're not long. But um, he has every question you could think of, because you see, he's a posik posik, and they send mandalik halkik shulchan as you can imagine, and even beyond that, and, you know, he has everyday questions. He has aguna questions. He has, uh, he has people ask him about the Siamese twins. I kid you not. And uh, oh, you name it. You know, there's a the life is full of strange sources. A guy murdered somebody. You know, what do you do? It's a it's a quite a remarkable work, right? Quite a remarkable work. And uh, it's so interesting. Not long ago, I'm just talking off the top of my head. Uh, I had occasion to write something up because I gave a talk somewhere about um, Kohen problems. I'm a Kohen. Kohen problems in the 18th century. Uh, 17th, 18th century. Which happens to be uh, interesting to me because most of you, I'm sure, listening are not Kohanim. But, uh, you know, you have a problem with a dead body in the house and all that. And, uh, you know, Kohen's not allowed to stay in the house with a dead body. Uh, which is uh, an old problem. And in Europe, very often, especially in the ghettos, like in Germany, Prague, places like that, the uh, whole Jewish community lived in one gigantic house, like we call today a row house, you understand? House. And uh, I think I mentioned this long ago if I talked about Pene Yeshua. And you often had a problem that someone will die in one house, and depending how the houses are structured, you know, if it's a tefach by tefach, if it, if, if, if it can escape, the tumor from one house to the other, which apparently a lot of times it could. It could be a situation where a guy's a coin and it could be Shabbos, it could be winter. Hear what I said? Shabbos and winter. It's like this. Somebody died eight houses away and uh, get out of here. You have to stand outside and freezing cold to the end of Shabbos. And let's say the coin is 75 years old, 85 years old. What, what, do, you, what do you do? You understand? What do you do? And I remember, Shuth Yaakov was a long, long discussion on this. And, uh, you know, I can't remember what it was. I highlighted it here somewhere. I just walked over and pulled this out of my shelf. I, I, I'm not going to waste your time, but he, I, I remember I, he has a whole discussion. He came up with all these very unusual coolers, uh, which really shocked me. Um, because uh, it's Mamash, a certain Pekoch Nefesh, if you understand what I'm saying. Now, many other posts can disagree. This particular question on what does a guy do when he live in a ghetto with all one long row house, and it might sometimes be like a ches. Very much. Anyway, said so house look like a ches. That means that the entire ghetto, without exception, is one long uh, uh, building, you know, both sides of the street or something like that, connected. And the guy can't go anywhere. Uh, this was a huge issue. And like I said before, I think I talked about it before when we talked about the Pineo show. He had that the problem was particularly acute in Frankfurt ghetto, but there are other areas, uh, you know, where you, you there was the old pattern of of uh, residence and dwelling. Like I said before, there's a whole bunch of coin questions that are uh, uh, very characteristic to me. I can write an article, maybe, on coin issues. And two things I know about the early modern period. Coin things pop up all the time, and Eruv things pop up all the time, Eruv questions, because they move to new areas where the Jews have not been before, and a lot of them are like Venice-type situations. It's a question about the, do you need an Eruv or not, you know, like Amsterdam and The Hague and Hamburg and places like that. Um, all this shows you that Shuth uh, Yaakov is like all is, is somebody dealing with all kinds of uh, questions, and uh, I'll tell you again, it's it's endlessly uh, fascinating. 
he's got a question. I remember, <laughs> boy, you know, let's put it this way. He lived, like I say, in war zones. We're talking about times when people were disgusting, you know. And uh, uh, he said, what do you do? How should I phrase this? You know, have you heard the story? I bet you've heard this story. You heard the story about the Nazis made uh, lampshades out of human skin. It's a question whether it's accurate or not. But, um, you know, as part of their barbarism. I've got news for you. In Europe, that's part of history. Making lampshades and other things out of human skin. And uh, in certain parts, you remember he lived in Poland and uh, Eastern Europe where they had wars between, I don't know, this one, that one, the Russians, the Turks, all kind of famous. And uh, here it is. Barash There was a big war in our area. And uh, we won a victory. So he would be the Polish king defeating the Turks, I imagine. You know, that the uh, army uh, w of the imperial armies were successful. It literally wiped out the enemy force. Listen to this. And then after the battle was over, uh, the peasants in Eastern Europe, they're sick dogs. Uh, so they, they didn't strip the slain. They took the skin off the slain. <laughs> it's like the wild Indians. You know, with the scalping, this got the body. So imagine a battlefield with hundreds of bodies, thousands of bodies, and they literally stripped off the skin off the dead soldiers, and then they were ma'abed the skin, and used it for leather, you understand? Immortally, so leads me most of the earth. So now it's part of the leather business. And the question of the Jews, uh, and he's asked the halachi question, can a Jew participate in that trade? Now it's now this part of the leather market. Oh my lord. <laughs> this, is, this is warfare back in the... Uh, Behemoth times. Well, not really. I said before, you know, didn't the Germans want to do this? You know, uh, you have uh, some pretty savage uh, types out there. All I can tell you is that wherever you go in the Shushiakov, I'm serious, I'm not saying to be witty or anything like that. You, have, you don't find, as I recall, you know, boring Shilas. Every question is from real life, and he was like one of these, uh, you know, big posts that everybody apparently wrote to. And uh, and the questions are, are, are always interesting. Now, I don't know exactly where he went with each one. You know, sometimes he's Mahmoud, sometimes he's Mako, like I said before. He's like a regular postic of the old variety that, you know, call it like you see it. And, uh, but it's, it, it's always uh, you know, fascinating, at least to me, particularly from a history point of view. You understand? From a local point of view, you're looking for a cool if you can find one. But a history point of view, you're looking at to see, you know, what's, what's there um, in the historical times. Uh, I'll just conclude with the observation that the Shushiakov has always been controversial. I don't know why. I know that he didn't hold from the other Achronim in his time and before, and a lot of Achronim didn't hold so much from him. Uh, this has been noted by uh, scholars. Uh, he's not quoted so often in the 18th century or whatever. Uh, I'm not 100% sure why. But look, I'm not in that level to be able to compare one with the other, but... Uh, maybe because he had a bad, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's the right temper or something. I, I know it's not possible to ascertain, but he's got a lot of tubes. And I'll tell you again, if you want something that's not very long and very complicated, I mean, they're not short, but you know, not very long, very complicated. 
uh, he, you, you'll always find something very interesting in the in the uh, Shoshiaka, something to take the show on chop, as, as the expression goes. And uh, what, what can I say? Now, uh, he ended up, as I said before, I think in Nets. I believe that's where he spent his last years. Uh, so he never got back to Prague. I think that's how it works. Did he go back to... No, I think so. And uh, I remember after he died, the Pinesh was there, and then afterwards with Jonas and Abishitz. When Jonas and Abishitz wanted to take his place, so that's where a lot of fights broke out. Because the Schwiss Yaakov had a son, but he died young. He writes about it somewhere. It was a bitter... I, I believe he had an only son. And he, you know, he died at the age of 35 or something like that. It was very, obviously, a terrible tragedy for the father. But that son had a son, Nehemiah, or Nehemiah Reicher. And he was the big enemy of Jonas uh, and Abschutz. He was involved in the M. Abschutz controversy, as they call it. But the Shuziakim himself was like a classic posting of uh, 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 of the old school in this way. So uh, I just uh, wanted to share that because if you look in his times and you look at his writing, you see really see uh, a very nice example of what, what I call the old school. That's enough for now. Oh yeah, I forgot one one last thing. It's also very interesting. He has a very interesting tube if you have to wear a yarmulke. Uh, I remember that. Uh, it's it's quoted a lot in the history books. Uh, because they asked the Shah, the emperor is coming to visit. And, you know, in in European culture, it's it's a sign of respect to take off your hat. right? I mean, be bareheaded. Bareheaded, I repeat. Uh, and this has always been a shout throughout Jewish history. What do you do? if the king comes or something along those lines. And uh, it's very interesting because, on the one hand, you know, the Jews are always very reluctant, especially in the old school, to take off the yarmulke. On the other hand, you don't want to, you know, insult the king. And uh, most of the time, they would take off that, you know, it depends. If the king was a nice guy, and he understood and all that, so it was fine. But a lot of times, it wasn't so simple. I have, uh, I saw a book. I bet you it's online of a photo where the Emperor Franz Josef, who was a very liberal guy vis-a-vis the Jews, is visiting Pressburg. It's around 1910, something like that, his own man. And you see he stopped, among other places, in the uh, Jewish neighborhood, from neighborhood. And you see the Rosh HaKol. Maybe it was even, uh, you know, the Shevet Sofer, one of the Sofers. Uh, real from-looking guy. And he's, uh, in a sign of respect, he's uh, bowing bareheaded. Uh, and he took his hat off and everything to the Kaiser. I'm sure he said, I'm relying on the Shvuth Yankov. You know what I mean? <laughs> relying on the Shvuth Yankov. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, and Shvuth Yankov does give a hat there. He says, like all postkim, he said, listen, uh, try your best to avoid this scenario. But if you have to, it's not a din exactly. Uh, it's not halacha. You have to, to wear yam, you have to cover your head. It's a, Jewish, it's a very Jewish thing. Uh, but if you get to the level it's halachically required, especially in the case of Eva and, uh, and, and Shalom Malchus and all that sort of thing. So uh, then he was, he, he was lenient. Uh, like I said before, this is a, a question that pops up uh, very interestingly in uh, generation after generation in a wi- very wide variety of, uh, of uh, what's the right word, of contexts. And uh, the Shushagot quoted not so rarely, not, not so rarely. Um, I recall, maybe I told you this, there's a book by Professor Breuer, passed away, about the Yaquis in, in, in the Germany of Kaiser Wilhelm. I think, I believe it was called Modernity Within Tradition. 
which is a translation of the book originally in German about the Orthodox Jews in the time of Hirsch, and actually in the generation after Samson of Hirsch, to be more exact, from 1871. And I think it was there that I saw that he had a um, uh, story where the crown prince, uh, what's his name, Friedrich, that would be, you know, there was, you don't know this, but there's Kaiser Wilhelm I and Kaiser Wilhelm II. Kaiser Wilhelm II is the one you know from the First World War. But his father was, his grandfather was Kaiser Wilhelm I. That's the guy who teamed up with Bismarck. But he had a son in the middle who was an emperor for a very short time because he had lung cancer by the time he became emperor. So he died that long. And he was a very liberal guy. He was married to the daughter of Queen Victoria. And she was a liberal influence on him. And he was not an anti-Semite, which is interesting for a Prussian prince. And I don't want to take up too much time. He visited a Jewish orphanage, which was an Orthodox Yekish orphanage, and they had a whole discussion. Should they take the hats on? Take the hats off? Because it's the Kaiser, you know, the crown prince, and what's the respect, and all the rest of it. And they went back and forth, and I'm sure they pulled out the Shushyakov, and finally said, I guess, if the, if the crown prince is coming in, everybody should take the hats off as a sign of respect. And he walked in, and he said this in German, I thought this is an Orthodox in, in, institution. Hats on, <laughs> he told them to do so. There's a story like that also, believes in Silver and President Taft. So, you know, you see these two as they, they pop up and pop up here and pop up there, but the approach to Shushyakov is going to be a classic. Anyway, that's plenty for tonight. Bye. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.